Uh, we have a great uh, pleasure treat today because Thomas Kuhn is here uh, and he's available to preach. We love Thomas. Thomas is an ordained minister in our denomination. He's a friend to many of us and he's also our RUF campus minister. I love listening to him teach and uh, was so glad. I've been trying to get him here for a long time and finally it has worked and so uh Let's show him our hospitality by giving him our full attention. Come on up, Thomas. It's good to be here with you this morning. Um, As Ben said, my name is Thomas. uh, And I don't know if you know this or not, but in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, today is known as Thomas Sunday. Believe it or not. Little known fact, you actually have to be named Thomas to preach the word on Thomas Sunday. So I don't know what the other churches are doing, um, but I'm here. Uh, It really is, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Uh, We're gonna be looking at Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17 this morning. So if you wanna go ahead and turn there. Um, let Let me pause and pray for us before we get started. Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you for this time that we can come together and to worship you, Lord, to, to take a moment to um, consider uh, who you are, to consider what it is that you have done for us. Uh, Lord, I, I do pray that you would open our eyes to see you more clearly. Uh, Lord, anytime your word goes forth, it doesn't return to you void. Lord, it accomplishes the thing for which you sent it. Lord, uh, your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. And Lord, we we long to look at you. We long to understand. And so will you open our eyes and will you help us to see wondrous, true things from your word? All these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, I have recently been watching a Netflix documentary series called Full Swing. Um, It is a series about PGA Tour golfers Uh, It is spring, it is the time of golf, Uh, so anybody who has heard me speak recently probably has gotten a golf illustration, that's just where we're at right now. Um, But one of my favorite episodes on Full Swing was about a guy named Joel Damon. Uh, And even if you know uh, the PGA Tour, it is extremely possible that you don't know who Joel Damon is, Uh, because he is kind of an unremarkable golfer in a lot of ways. Uh, At the beginning of Joel Damon's episode, they kind of ask him, you know, how does he think about himself, and he says, well... Somebody's got to be the 70th best golfer in the world, Um, which is still pretty amazing, better than anybody in this room. But on the PGA Tour, it's kind of forgettable. Uh, And they asked him at the beginning of the episode if he was ready to win a major tournament, which there are four major tournaments, kind of the most important tournaments in a golf season. And he said in kind of this classic self-deprecating way, like, absolutely not. I am not at all ready to win a major tournament. It's never going to happen. Uh, The people who are top 10 in the world, they are just built different, and that's just not me. And you just kind of see throughout this this episode that he doesn't really take himself very seriously. Uh, At one point, he's trying to uh, qualify for the U.S. Open, one of the majors. His first round, he has to play 36 holes. His first round of 18 holes doesn't go so well. And so he decides at lunch that he's going to drink not one, but two White Claws in between his rounds. So he drinks these White Claws, goes out and shoots an amazing round and somehow qualifies for the U.S. Open. This guy just does not take himself seriously. And then at the end of the episode, uh, it's him playing in the U.S. Open. And 
as time goes on, he starts playing really, really well. And actually, after 36 holes, he has the lead. He has the lead. This guy who says he could never win a major has the lead in a major. And he doesn't end up winning it, but he does end up finishing in the top 10. And so the question kind of at the end of the episode, it's left with this idea of like, is this guy going to continue on the way he was? Is he not going to take himself seriously? Like what's going to have to change moving forward for him now that this kind of impossible thing in his view happened? You see, for Joel Damon, something impossible had happened and it meant that there was going to have to be change. And I think as we consider where we are kind of in the church calendar, last week was Easter. We celebrated the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Something impossible has happened. And so we're kind of left in the same place. Something impossible has happened. What's got to change for us moving forward? What's going to be different? And so this passage of scripture that we're looking at um, in Colossians 3 Uh, It's preceded by this kind of amazing declaration at the beginning of Colossians chapter 3, where Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And then he says later in verse 3, You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul is making this this amazing declaration that, that the resurrection wasn't just some cool trick that God did. Um, that it is somehow, mysteriously, it is an internal dynamic for those of us who trust in Jesus. When we receive and rest in him by faith alone, uh, the resurrection is not just some cool thing that happened, but it's a present reality in us. We should expect our lives as Christians to be resurrection-shaped. And then Paul goes on to describe what this looks like. He he uses this uh, clothing metaphor that we're supposed to put off certain things and put on certain things. And so we're going to be looking at the section where Paul talks about what we're supposed to put on because the resurrection has happened. So what we're going to see today is that being united with the risen Christ, the fact that we have been raised with Christ, it means that we must practice resurrection, that we must practice resurrection. Uh, This means that our lives are going to be resurrection shaped. There's going to be this pattern of death and new life in our lives as believers, But what does this look like? Uh, We're going to see three things as we look at this passage today. So practicing resurrection, first, it looks like forgiving one another. Second, it looks like being centered on Christ. And then third, it looks like giving thanks in all things. So forgiving one another, being centered on Christ, and giving thanks in all things. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and read uh, the passage for us, and then we can jump in and get started. Uh, So let's look at Colossians 3, starting in verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. 
All right, so practicing resurrection. First off, this looks like forgiving one another. If you would look back with me to verse 12. So Paul kind of starts off here, again, with this clothing metaphor. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So Paul here first, he is encouraging this this group of people, this group of Christians to put on a kind of family identity. And what is this family identity? He says it there, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And if you're at all familiar with the Old Testament, like uh, the original audience of this probably would have been, uh, you would know that this designation here, it's kind of a hyperlink to the Old Testament. Old Testament Israel, God's chosen people, they, they were known as his chosen ones. They were known as his holy nation. They were known as his beloved. And so Paul is doing something that's pretty radical here. He's talking to this diverse church, this group of this church that is made of Jews and Gentiles, and he is referring to them as God's covenant people. He's using the same language that God used for his covenant people in the Old Testament to refer to these people in the New Testament. And the implications of this are huge. This this means that this church, the the Christian church, is God's chosen family in the world through which he is going to carry out his mission that that he, he proclaimed to Abraham. He says, I will bless you and you will be a blessing. And he says later on that you will be a light to the nations, meaning you are going to be the one that displays what I look like to a watching world. So that's what Paul is doing here first. He he is saying that they are the family that God has chosen for his mission in the world. But with this family identity, there comes kind of a family resemblance, if you will. Uh, We see this at the latter end of verse 12. He says, to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And then later on, and above these, put on love, which binds them together in perfect harmony. Uh, These are all kind of internal and on some level, unremarkable qualities. You know, God, uh, there's just been this designation that has been applied to these people as you are God's chosen people. You are the one who is going to carry out the mission of God in the world. And what is said is not that you're going to do miraculous, amazing things. What is said is that you're going to be compassionate, that you're going to be kind, humble, meek, and patient and you're going to be loving. See, all of these are designations that that we could could easily apply to Jesus himself. This this family is going to look like Jesus himself. There's going to be a family resemblance. So there's an identity, a resemblance, but then also there's a family business, which is kind of the main thing we're considering here. We see this in verse 13. Uh, Paul says that uh, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So this family has something that that we do. Namely, we bear with one another. We bear with one another. What does it mean to bear with one another? Uh, The word in the Greek there uh, can mean something like enduring patiently. Enduring you ever been in a, in a relationship with someone where there, there was just something that was painfully obvious that you just had to endure because you love them? You had to suffer something about someone. That's what it means. It means to bear with one another, allowing others to be in process. This is how we should relate to one another. We should bear with one another. And then this escalates in the second half of the verse, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. 
So maybe for some of us, it might be easy just temperamentally to allow people to be in process, to not get too offended by the things that people do. Uh, But this, I think, should be hard for any of us if we're honest. We are called to forgive the same way that Jesus forgave us. And Paul, earlier in in this letter, has described how Jesus forgave us. And he said, "'You who were once dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross.'" Okay, the forgiveness that Jesus has given us required his death. It required his death. And in the same way, forgiveness requires a death. It requires us dying to what we think that we're owed in a certain situation in order to raise another to new life. Uh, Jesus tells a story in Matthew chapter 18 of a king who had two servants. Uh, the, The first servant that he talks about had this completely this enormous debt that there's no way that he could have possibly paid back. And so this man comes to the king and he essentially, he begs for mercy. He says, have mercy. I can't possibly pay this back. And so the king, he gives mercy. The king forgives his debt. And then later on, Jesus says that this man went around and he realized that he actually had someone who owed him money. And so he went to this man to try to collect the money. And then the man responded the exact same way that he did to the king. He said, have mercy. And what did the man do? The man did not have mercy on him. He actually had him sent to jail. And then, of course, the king hears about this, and he's incensed. And he goes, and he calls back this first servant. He calls him wicked. And he says that he did not understand the forgiveness that had been given to him. See, uh, forgiveness, it, it is based on the fact that we deserve death, and we have been given life. This first servant deserved death and he was given life. And it is nonsensical for someone who knows that about ourselves to not be eager to give that forgiveness to one another. It doesn't make sense. We're not living out who we are. And I think we may understand this cognitively, like it makes sense. Jesus has forgiven us, therefore we should forgive other people. But I think in practice, this can be really difficult. I think this can be difficult for some of us because uh, forgiveness, the the death side of forgiveness, for some of us, maybe it feels like death to let someone know that they did something to you that requires forgiveness. Like pointing out that someone said something or continually says something that harms you feels like death for some of us. We might be thinking to ourselves, you know, it's not that big of a deal. If they knew, then they wouldn't say that sort of thing to me. And I, I understand this, I, I identify with this on some level, but, but I just want to gently push back and, and ask you, could it be that in not being willing to talk to someone about the ways that they have harmed us, and not being willing to, to take ownership of the fact that, that we need to reconcile with someone, that we're not just kind of brushing something under the rug, we're actually holding back an opportunity for resurrection life, We're actually not allowing them to experience uh, the death and resurrection that belongs to us as Christians. We're not experiencing that ourselves, nor are we allowing them to experience it. But maybe you're here today and uh, kind of the idea of forgiving and being forgiven, it it seems a bit unnecessary. Uh, Maybe that's something that you kind of have this idea of like maybe early in your Christian life, you need a lot of forgiveness. Or to use like a marriage metaphor, you might be thinking if, if, you know, if you're married or if you have a really close friend over a long period of time, 
There's a lot of forgiveness, right, on the front end that needs to happen. You're kind of bumping up into each other all the time. Uh, but anyone who's married, of course, there, there comes a point where you never need forgiveness, right? <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh, the opposite is often true. Or actually, the opposite should be true. Because you know each other, and, and when you bump up against each other later on in marriage, it's actually on purpose. You see, we need forgiveness continually. Uh, maturity in Christ, it means an ever-increasing trust in his righteousness on my behalf, and an ever-increasing suspicion in my own righteousness. Another way to say it is that the cross should be bigger and bigger to us the more that we grow in Christ. So in forgiving one another, we die to our desire to treat people as they deserve, and we are raised to a new life of reconciled relationships. Forgiveness is practicing resurrection. Okay, but second, practicing resurrection, it looks like being centered on Christ. Being centered on Christ. What does that mean? Uh, maybe you've heard of uh, some, you know, some sort of resource or something as this is a great Christ-centered resource. What, what does that actually mean for, for a person, for a church, for a group of people to be centered on Christ? Uh, Paul gives us kind of two commands here in verses 15 and 16. The first one is this. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Uh, a couple things to point out. When it says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, the your is plural. Let the peace of Christ rule in y'all's hearts. Uh, this is the hill that I will die on. We need to use y'all in Bible translations. It's clear. Uh, to which indeed you were called in one body. What does it mean for the peace that comes from Christ to rule in us? Uh, rule here kind of means to regulate, to, to arbitrate. It's kind of like how an umpire uh, kind of establishes the rules of the game, makes sure that the game is able to be played well. That is how the peace that comes from Christ is supposed to function within a Christian community. Christ is to be our umpire. And, and what is this peace that comes from Christ? Well, again, Paul has mentioned this earlier in the book of Colossians. He said that, that Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. It is a cross-centered peace that brings reconciliation. So being centered on Christ, it means the, the peace of Christ ruling in our midst. But second, we see in verse 16, Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What does it mean to dwell? Uh, to dwell, if you're anything like me, you think about how uh, if you're obsessing over something, you could say that you're dwelling on it. That's kind of what Paul's after here. Uh, it's this idea of, of making a home. The word of Christ is to make a home within our midst. And the word of Christ here, of course, just means, it means the good news of Jesus. It means the word of God. It means the story of the gospel. That's supposed to take up a home in us. And he gives an example here. It means teaching and admonishing one another. And it means singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I came across a, a great kind of paraphrase of this verse. And it says it this way. It says, be at home in the gospel story and let it be at home in you so that it may always be ready for use. That's what it means to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It means to be at home in the gospel story and to let it be at home in you so that you can always use it 
in your interactions with each other. And we are called to do this as a church. We are called to do this as families. We are called to do this as individuals. What might this look like? Uh, so my, my senior, the year, or the summer before my senior year of college, I lived in uh, a college house with a bunch of guys. And we, I had a roommate who was a grad student in nuclear engineering. Uh, he was brilliant and uh, very mechanically minded. And so he decided that he was gonna buy this old Jeep, uh, a CJ7, if, if any of you know what that is. And he was gonna fix it up. And immediately all of the roommates were pretty excited about that because we had in our mind like images of us, you know, cruising around the city in this Jeep, which we got to do a little bit. Um, but we didn't realize that when he said he was buying this Jeep, uh, that it just, it did not run. Like this thing needed a lot of work. And even more, we realized that he intended to do all the work at our house. And you might be thinking, oh, outside our house, that's not so bad. No, no, no. He did it inside the house. Uh, the sunroom at the back, there was a, the whole chassis was back there. The whole thing. Uh, eventually, like all these packages started coming into the house from all of these obscure Jeep parts dealers from all over the world, started sending these packages to him. Uh, there were oily rags everywhere. And then that's when the flies came. Uh, you, open, you open the door so many times to go out to the Jeep and there's just a plague of flies, like, like Exodus level plague of flies in the house. <laughs> It got to the point where you couldn't really understand, like, where does the house begin and where does the Jeep end? <laughs> like, it ceased to be a home and became an auto shop. The presence of the Jeep, it, the house became something else entirely. And what I want to submit to you is that is the sort of presence that Christ has among his people. That, that when he is among his people, we become something else entirely. There is no place where his peace does not rule there is no place where his word does not dwell among us. And that sounds great, but in practice, I think it's really hard. Uh, my wife and I recently, my wife Molly, we had recently just had this conversation, and I wonder if you can relate to this. Uh, we've been married for about eight years now, and we, we just kind of came to this point where we're like, you know, it feels really awkward to talk about Jesus with you. It feels really awkward to talk about spiritual life. I, I just don't know what to say. I don't know how to have a, a life with Jesus together with you. And here's the thing, like we're both Christians. We've been Christians for a long time. One of us professionally, right? We've been Christians. We, we try to read our Bibles. We try to, we pray, we do all of those things. And yet it's hard for us to find practically, to find the time to really ask each other, like, how's it going? How is your discipleship with Christ going? And, and if I'm honest, the reason is, much of the time, I think I'd rather just be, like, not having those conversations. I might rather be watching TV or maybe scrolling on my phone. I'd probably not like to talk about whether I'm experiencing the easy yoke of Jesus or whether I'm abiding in the vine or whether I'm delighting in the Lord. And, and as I've talked to people about this, I don't think I'm unique in this. Uh, maybe I am, and I just feel like a really bad person. Um, but what I'm saying is, it is so easy, it is so easy for us to split our life into this kind of sacred and secular spaces. It's so easy. It's so easy to say that there, there are spaces where Christ's peace rules. There are spaces where his word dwells, and there are spaces where, where it doesn't, really. There, there's God time, and there's me time. 
There's sacred time where, where maybe it's the quiet time in the morning or maybe it's coming to church. And then there's secular time where we kind of recharge and, and watch Netflix or just kind of hang out. But what I want to submit to you is that when Christ's peace rules and when his word dwells among us, we find every single moment becomes holy. Every moment. Every interaction becomes sacred. We find that there really is no such thing as sacred and secular. It's all sacred because Christ rules. And this is going to require a death to kind of our segmented view of life, the sacred-secular divide in our minds, and a resurrection to a life centered on Jesus. So being centered on Christ, it is practicing resurrection. So third and finally, uh, uh, being, practicing resurrection, it means giving thanks in all things. So this is just going to be from a couple of various verses throughout here. If you were paying attention when I read this passage, uh, Paul has called us to thankfulness three separate times. He says, and be thankful, and then with thankfulness in your heart, giving thanks to God the Father through Jesus. Why the emphasis on thankfulness here? Like, is it just kind of a, a good thing to do? Um, I have a two-year-old named Louise who is adorable um, and has some words, but not all the words, and doesn't exactly pick up on social cues yet. I don't, I don't know what's wrong with her. She's two, that's what. Um, but oftentimes, someone will, like, give her something, and then I, as her parent, will kind of hover over and say, can you say thank you, Louise? Can you say thank you? And then inevitably, she just, like, deadpan stares at the person, and kind of my, like, southern sense of decorum just dies inside. Um, why do we want our kids to say thank you? Because we don't want them to be little monsters, right? Like we want our kids to have a sense of, of being interdependent on one another. So there's kind of this sense of, of decorum. Uh, then also, if you've paid attention to kind of modern social science, uh, there's a lot of people who are encouraging things like practicing gratitude. Uh, that, that saying thank you or keeping a gratitude journal, it, it's good for your health. Okay, so there's kind of this sense of thank you as decorum or thank you as something that we do for our well-being. And there's nothing wrong with being polite. There's nothing wrong with having good emotional well-being. But what I want to point out from this text uh, is that that is not what is, we're being called to here. The thankfulness that we are being called to is a uniquely Christian thankfulness. Uh, this is how Paul says it in verse 17. He says, it is giving thanks to the Father through Jesus. Give me thanks to the Father through Jesus. This is not decorum. This is not a general sense of gratitude in one's life, even though those are good things. This is a continual humble and thankful posture towards God in everything that we do. So how is this sort of thankfulness a part of practicing resurrection? Um, I love the new series, uh, The Rings of Power on Amazon. I don't know if you've watched it. Uh, it's, it's kind of like a somewhat apocryphal Lord of the Rings uh, story. I believe it's set in the, the first age. Uh, Lord of the Rings nerds out there could correct me later. Um, but there's this scene where there's this couple. Uh, the couple is an, an elf and a human um, named Arondir and Bronwyn. And they're about to go into this battle that is almost certainly going to claim both of their lives. Uh, they're facing certain death. And what they do before this battle is Arondir, the elf, he, he introduces her to kind of this ritual that the elves have, which is they take a seed and they plant it beneath the ground, and then they cover it over with soil, and they say this, new life in defiance of death. In the face of death, they plant a seed. 
They plant new life. And what I want to submit to you is that that is how thankfulness works in our life. Thankfulness, it is new life in defiance of death. And we, we put this new life in the soil of our own hearts, of our families, of our broader community. Imagine what it would look like if there is a church of people here in Lincoln that lives with this posture of thankfulness towards God. Imagine the new life in defiance of death that that would place in our community. You see, in giving thanks, we are pushing back on our insistence that all that we have is earned and not given. We are leaning into what author Marilyn Robinson calls the givenness of things. We are acknowledging the fact that our money, our time, even our very bodies do not belong to us, but belong to Jesus. And in thankfulness to God, we put to death our self-interest and we are raised to communion with the risen Christ. A uh, great example of what this looks like. Uh, one of the most important people in my life continually, uh, she since passed away, but was my, my mama, which uh, that's South Carolina for grandma, if you don't know. Um, but my mama named Louise, we named our oldest daughter after her. But I remember every single time that we would eat at mama's house, uh, it was the exact same. She would spend all day preparing all this food and then she would come out into the living room and make us stand around the edge of the living room holding hands and she would say the longest prayer ever, um, every single time. And then at the end of the prayer, she would say this exact same thing. I never heard her say anything other than this at the end of the prayer. She would say, in Jesus' name, with thanksgiving, amen. And I remember hearing that over, over the longest time, and I was just like, that just feels kind of like a cold ritual. I'm like, I don't know why she always says that. Uh, but as I observed her life, and as I began to, to really get into a point where the gospel was bearing fruit in my own life, it, it stuck out to me as something that was so significant. Because when I think about my mama, what I think about is joy. I think about a woman who knew who she was. And, and her life was not easy. She lost her husband at a very young age. She, she had all sorts of sicknesses and things throughout her life, and yet her life was joy, even in the end where it got to a point where she couldn't even remember my name or anyone else's name. She knew who gave her everything. There was a real sense of resting in God, resting in the joy that he brings. There was new life in defiance of death. You see, that same thing can happen to us in giving thanks. Giving thanks in all things is practicing resurrection. Okay, so let's kind of bring everything together here. We've seen that because we're united to the risen Christ, we must practice resurrection. Our lives need to be resurrection-shaped. And this looks like forgiving one another. This looks like being Christ-centered. This looks like giving thanks. And as you were reading this passage, it, it, it kind of has a lot to do with how we relate to one another. It, it's, it's completely talking really about how Christians should treat one another. Why so much emphasis on that? Like, like, why does that matter so much? Um, there's a quote on the front of your bulletin um, that I think really kind of gets at this. It's from Leslie Newbegin. He was a, a missionary and missiologist, and he says this. He says, I have come to feel that the primary reality of which we have to take account in seeking for a Christian impact on public life is the Christian congregation. How is it possible that the gospel should be credible? that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross. I am suggesting that the only answer 
The only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. The only hermeneutic or the only way to understand the gospel is a congregation of people who are practicing resurrection. You see, when someone who doesn't know Jesus comes into the midst of a congregation of people who are practicing resurrection, they get a picture of who God is. They get a picture that this is not just kind of bare ritual, but know that this is a place that, that has communion with a risen Savior, a risen Savior. And when we, as a resurrected people, when we forgive one another, when we center our lives on Christ, and when we give thanks in all things, we display who Jesus is. But how are we going to do that? How are we going to have power to do that sort of thing? Um, I, if you'll bear with me, I'll give you another golf illustration. Uh, so Tiger Woods, one of my favorite golfers, uh, he has a son named Charlie that he recently played in a tournament with. And there was this viral video that went around uh, about how Tiger and Charlie have the exact same mannerisms. Exact same. Uh, it's really great. You should watch it. It's, it's really sweet on some level to see the relationship that they have. How did Charlie pick up those mannerisms? It was because he was with his dad. It's because he's been with his dad over and over again. And what I want to tell you is that if you are in Christ, in the most significant way possible, Jesus is with you. Jesus is more with you than, than, than Tiger Woods is with his son. The gospel has been pressed into the deepest part of our heart. Uh, elsewhere in the New Testament, it says that uh, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will surely be united with him in a resurrection like his. That the spirit of resurrection dwells within us. And as we are with Jesus, we will start to look like him. As we are with Jesus, our lives will be marked by death and resurrection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Uh, we thank you that uh, the resurrection uh, was not just some cool trick, uh, but Lord, that it is a, um, a true reality. Lord, that it, that it happened in history and that it has implications for our lives in the present. Lord, I pray um, that you would help us to, um, to draw near to you to draw near to you, and, and as we draw near to you by your Spirit, that we would become people who more and more practice resurrection, people who embody uh, the good news of Jesus in our midst. Uh, Lord, we need your grace to do that. Lord, we all fall short, um, but Lord, I pray that you would help us to um, not look to our own righteousness, not look to our own ability to forgive well or to be super focused on you, uh, Lord, or to be super thankful, but Lord, instead that we would focus on you and out of that, that we would be people who practice resurrection. All these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.